Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And um, we're going to take a little bit of a pause in Mark upcoming weeks. We ha- we'll be in the park next week and we won't be in Mark. And then we have a couple messages on the front end of September where we're, just, we're going to just look at kind of our mission together and kind of a reset on what God's calling us to. So we'll have a couple sermons back to back out of Mark and then we'll get back into Mark, I think, on the 25th. And so um, we're going we're to be looking this morning at verses... Um, 26 through 52, big chunk. We're going to read here in a moment. But similar to the, the feeling of this room at the moment, um, you've probably been watching and hearing about the, the heat and the droughts that are going on, both U.S. and, of course, the world. Um, droughts are being experienced everywhere, the, the, the intense warm weather, the, the harsh heat, the lack of rain. Um, it's bringing water levels significantly down on rivers and lakes, exposing certain things beneath them that um, are very tragic and some amazing. Um, in Fort Worth, Texas, I just read this week that there was a dried up riverbed that exposed a newly discovered fossilized footprint, uh, believed to be of some giant dinosaur that walked on two feet. Um, in China, off the Yangtze River, they exposed an island that I don't know how many times this has been seen before, but there are these three Buddhist statues, possibly 600 years old, that are just now fully exposed. Uh, near Prahovo, I believe that's how you say that, in eastern Serbia, droughts have exposed on the Danube River 20 wrecked Nazi warships that have been resting on the bottom of this, this river for over 80 years that, that have not been seen. Now, a major fear and complication is that there's tons of ammo and explosives on these ships still. And so it's thought of that this was the fle- a fleet of ships that had been scuttled uh, and sunk so they would not fall into enemy's hands. I mean, what a picture of the intensity of war, uh, abandoning something that's worth uh, so much, uh, it's so valuable because of opposition that is coming. Even just think of soldiers on the front lines, the temptation, because of the intensity of that for them to become deserters. There's the fear, there's nothing left but to run. And as I thought about these droughts and and this exposing of things under, under the surface, my mind kind of went to, to even my own life or, or maybe our lives where the heat becomes intense. It, it barrels down on us and it kind of wicks away the things that it's easily to hide what's down at the very bottom. What's really revealing there when everything is exposed and pulled back, what's deep down at the bottom and at times, what is exposed is, is not very pretty. And we come to our text today, and, and the heat is, is getting really, really hot. The crushing weight of the cross ahead for Jesus is, is intensifying. It's intensifying on Jesus' heart and his mind. The weight of being a faithful disciple of Jesus, following him along with his path to the cross, is exposing the weakness and where the hearts of the disciples are. Remember, the disciples have been, been called by Jesus. He, he chose these guys. He picked these guys. They followed him for many years. They, he, they ate with him. They lodged with him. They witnessed his miracles and his power, him as Messiah. And they're, they're seeing the value and worth of the Savior, the, the cost of what it would fo- to follow him, 
And yet, what we'll see vividly this morning is becomes very clear the exposing of the weaknesses of the disciples, the vulnerability of the disciples, the weakness of men, the weakness of men and women, the weakness of disciples called by Jesus. And yet, in contrast to that, is the power and the strength and the resolve of Jesus our Savior. A Savior willing to embrace a cross of weakness, of suffering, and through His suffering, overcome the weakness of men by His power as the Son of God. And Jesus' disciples must recognize and come to grips with their weakness for us to truly understand and embrace the power of God. And so, we're going to read our text and then we'll, we'll pray, starting at verse 26 this morning. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after that, I am raised, when I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. We're going to read the next section here in a bit. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege to come and, and be reminded this morning of, of your glorious power and our significant, desperate need for you, and that you have not withheld yourself from us, but you have moved towards us. And as we, as we were reminded, as we sung this morning already that, that we are weak and yet you are strong and that Jesus, you paid it all for us. And so allow your word to inform and shape our trust and our worship and our hope this morning. Amen. Amen. So last week we, we saw that this disciples eating with Jesus, and he had communicated that there would be a, a betrayer among them. They ate the Passover meal. Jesus explained the significance of that with his disciples, and it, it concluded the night by singing a song together, a hymn. And then after the meal, after a full night of eating and drinking and worship and a serious discussion, they crossed the, the, the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, and they moved, moved their way to the Mount of Olives. And it's night, it's dark, it's probably very late in the Passover night. I imagine a, a calm, clear sky. I don't know if that's true or not, but the moon bright. And Jesus foretells what is going to take place ahead. 
Now, we can't overlook what's been happening throughout the Gospel of Mark, but specifically as He nears His cross. Jesus, His posture is, and His words are communicating that He is constantly in control of what is going on. The, the sufferings ahead, the betrayals ahead, the, His crucifixion ahead are, are His choice. He, he's moving towards these things, and things are happening intentionally by God's design. And in his awareness of all of that, he warns his disciples. He predicts something. Look at verse 27. You will all fall away. For it is written, something about what they're going to do is a response to what has been written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And in this prophecy, which is located in chapter 13, the prophet is speaking of a judgment that is coming to to Israel. And in verse 1, it begins this, On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And this, this fountain of cleansing that will come, that will take place, God says, will come by a method of violence. Verse 7, says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So God is prophesying that there's a judgment that was going to come, and the purpose of this was the cleansing of Israel from their idols, their idolatry, their, to bring cleansing from their uncleanliness, their sins. And this would unfold, notice the Lord Yahweh striking the man who stands next to me, to him. Jesus is drawing attention to that. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The shepherd, the good shepherd in Zechariah's prophecy who will be struck, the one who will be struck is the Son of God. And something is going to be accomplished by this striking, what we've seen already in Isaiah, a piercing a piercing for iniquities of the sheep. Isaiah would say, sheep that have gone astray, that have turned every one to their own way, that have fallen away to bring a fountain of cleansing for those sheep. Jesus tells his disciples, all of them are going to fall away. So it's not just the betrayer at the night before at the dinner table. It is all of them. Uh, Josh recently helpfully drew, drew our attention to this theme throughout the, the book of Mark, this thread of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed and the various responses we see in Mark to the kingdom of God. It is this interesting echo of the seed. Remember the rocky soil, the seed lands, and it, it is received with joy. But Jesus says the sun and the heat comes pounding down upon that rocky ground, and it scorches it because it has no root, and it withers away. And when Jesus expands on that, he says it's persecution that comes on account of the word, and it immediately falls away. Mark chapter 4. The disciples are going to tragically fall away. But Jesus gives them this little promise. A promise that after, verse 28, when I am raised up, when I'm risen, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, it's almost like a little aside because it 
the way the disciples respond, particularly Peter, it's like they didn't even hear that. It, it seems like it was just overlooked by the disciples. We're going to return to it, so just bookmark that. Because Peter just speaks up. Our bold, brash Peter. Oh, Peter. Remember when Jesus took him aside, when, when uh, Jesus was taken aside by Peter to be rebuked by Peter in chapter 8? Now, on the one side, it, it's apparent Peter is seeing the value of Jesus as the Messiah. He, he wants to die for Jesus by Jesus' side. And yet, on the flip, there is this self assurance, this kind of blind pride. Jesus, not me. The other guys are going to do it, but not me, Jesus. Not me. I would never do that. That would never happen to me. It's, it's amazing the short-sightedness that we can all, this, this little echo for all of us as disciples, our, the way our pride can blind us from seeing or acknowledging how vulnerable or weak we really are. The things that we're susceptible to. This can happen in small ways or big ways. I, I remember when I was sort of an ignorant, I don't know, 20, young 20-something, no family. And I remember I rode in this minivan with a family who had a bunch of kids. And I, I might like, like to keep my stuff clean and like vehicles clean. And I just remember like scoffing at the condition of this minivan. <laughs> like, look at the filth in this thing. Like, I would never do this. Fast forward, four kids, minivan. There is like just rotten milk in the carpet, Cheerios embedded in everything. It's just like eating my words. Blind. Humility as a disciple, a follower of Christ, is required because I realize it's by the grace of God alone that I stand. Grace of God alone. Peter, moment of intense blindness, he protests And Jesus, in this scary, specific response to him, tells him, truly, I tell you, this very night, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you are going to deny me three times. So we know the the rooster would crow numerous times in the morning at dawn, and each each crow would not be very lengthy, it would admit it would be not far spaced out between each of these crows. And Jesus is saying, in this short amount of time, you are going to deny me multiple times. And of course, he emphatically responds, if I must die with you, I would never deny you. I will not deny you. And, and notice it's not just Peter. It's just not Peter. They all, me too, Jesus, I'm going to do the same thing. What Peter said, they all agree. They all said the same They all said the same. So after that moment, they leave. They go to a place called Gethsemane. Let's read verse 32 through the remainder of our chapter. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a crowd with swords and clubs and from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And one with those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have day after day, was I not with you in the temple teaching? You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him and nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So Jesus turns to Gethsemane, just below the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means olive press, so it's likely an olive orchard. We know from the Gospels they would frequent this place as disciples. Jesus would now come with the purpose to pray. He leaves a group of the disciples away, heads in deeper into the grove with three of the closer disciples of his sort of inner circle. And the the scorching heat of his suffering ahead is becoming unbearable. It says he was greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Jesus leaves the three. He goes deeper into the garden to pray. To pray and he, he falls on his face and he, and he cries out, to the Father, that somehow there could be an alternative to this hour. Jesus addresses God the Father, Abba, Father. That word Abba is Aramaic, is a term of intimacy, of affection. Only Mark includes this particular address of the Father in all the Gospels. Abba, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is this cup? Remember, Jesus spoke of this cup earlier in Mark chapter 10 that this is the cup of judgment. This is 
This is the baptism of judgment that he would experience. The Old Testament usage of the cup signifies judgment like we see in Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It was a cup of judgment because of sin. Now, Jesus' request, his his posture in this is not entertaining the idea of rebelling against God's will, but in his humanity, out of the reality of what lays ahead for Jesus, his request is if, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's an alternative to achieve this mission. But Jesus has to drink the cup. And, and what lays ahead, all of the beatings, all of the, the mockery, all of the betrayal, it, it's, not the, it's not the crown of thorns, it's not the piercing of the nails or his dying that brought him to this place. It would happen at the cross. What distress and sorrow unto death was plaguing him? pounding in his thoughts, his his emotions, taking over his body physically. What torment is this? It's Isaiah Isaiah 53.10. That the Lord would crush him. The Father was going to crush him. He would be pierced for transgressions, crushed for iniquities. This was his mission. Jesus came as a ransom for many, to shed his blood, blood poured out for many. Not for himself, for others. He would encounter the crushing, holy wrath of God, the just wrath of God against sins, not of his own, but of others. This is why he's overwhelmed at the point of death. Not the sins of one man, but of millions, of men and women who deserve just payment for their rebellion and sins and all the brokenness of the result of sins. Jesus would take upon himself. Jesus would take within himself as if they were his own. The sins of men, sins that Jesus never committed would be accounted as his own. This is the horror of what is about to take place that Jesus is encountering, the pain, the stench of evil and darkness, the abandonment of the Father where he very soon would cry out, why have you forsaken me? It was his hour. It was the cup to drink on behalf of sinners. This This substitution, this exchange is at the very heart of the gospel. And it's what Jesus was willing to do. God himself sacrificing himself for man. Would Jesus fall away when this test was upon him? The disciples only show weakness in this moment. Even after Jesus' plea and his warnings... They sleep. Verse 38, watch and pray, he tells them, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And they are weak. 
They sleep while Jesus intercedes in agony. And this happens three times. Jesus returns, can't you stay awake? Jesus watches and prays. The disciples sleep. We can read this text and it, it can be sort of dauntingly convicting. If we're really, really honest with ourselves, we, we just hear those words, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and we should all say, yeah. But like Peter, we can, we can have these grand aspirations to our, our spiritual faithfulness in progress. And our commitments may not be as serious as we promised as Peter did to Jesus, but they're, they're real desires, right? It might just be that, that new, deeper Bible reading plan that just fizzles out after a few months. That discipleship process that just seems to kind of wane, the, the prayer plan, kicking that nagging habit once and for all, that besetting in sin that just fight for, and it just seems to return when the heat comes down on you. It just, everything kind of gets exposed again and you realize, God, why still here? Our laziness as disciples, our sleep that we choose maybe over prayer. Jesus found them sleeping. I love that in verse 40. It just says, and they didn't know how to answer him. Like, we, God, we don't know. I, 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 have no, I have no excuse for this. I have no excuse for this. I'm guilty. But I think what is helpful here, here is that their weakness is not an obstinate rebellion against the Savior. They're guilty not in the sense of obstinate rebellion, but, but an exposure of human weakness. And that's oftentimes the battle for us. It's, we, God, I'm weak. I, I don't have an answer, Lord, but I'm, I'm trying, but I'm weak. And it, we can struggle, some of us, with condemning consciences that, that plague us with a sense of false guilt that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, but a sense of not realizing the work and the, the blessing and joy and the freedom of the gospel that comes to us. But one that can say, Lord, I am weak, but I'm depending upon you because you are strong. The heat comes down and exposes ugly things at times for us, the things that we want to avoid admitting we don't want to look at that pops up. And it's in those moments that we, we don't need to despise them, but we see them as God's work in our lives to, to come and move His grace towards us. Our need for Jesus. Lord, we are weak, but Lord, You are strong. Jesus told the disciples back in Mark 13 to watch, to be on guard, and we hear the echoing of these very things again. Disciples, watch pray, be on guard. The weakness of man left to his own strength and power without Christ will only leave us with one destination, and that will be falling away. And yet, we have a Savior. Did he, did he walk away from this test? Did, is he one that would fall away from fulfilling the mission and entrusting himself to the will of God. No. What did he resolve to do? Not my will, but yours, Lord. Not my will, but yours, Father. And 
Three times he predicted his suffering and dying. Three, de- three times he goes away to pray. Three times the disciples are unable to stay and wake, and yet Jesus is resolved to go to his hour. He says, his hour has come. My hour has come. It's time for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus is in control. This is planned. It is what Jesus has predicted would come true. And as soon as he gets these words out of his mouth, it says the betrayer comes. His his title is the betrayer now. But he's also one of the twelve. And Judas shows up with his armed gang sent by the religious leaders with swords and clubs with, with, you know, ready to, to fight, ready to... Who are, they, who are they arresting? Judas slips in and he kisses him. Now, this would not have been an unusual thing. This is a practice in this culture. We even see in the New Testament church being encouraged to kiss one another with a holy kiss as a way to greet. But Judas moves in quick as if done by a friend or a loved one, and we should feel the disgust. Jesus is handed over by Judas with a betraying kiss. A woman just a couple nights prior poured out costly perfume on Jesus' head in honor and worship, and now Jesus kisses Jesus' head in shame and betrayal and dishonor. Remember, it's dark, maybe some moonlight in the intensity of this moment, the scuffle, the fear, the anxiety, a sword is pulled out by one of the disciples and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, this is not likely because of some precision and skill with a sword. It's likely because of the opposite of that. It's interesting that we find no reference to a healing in here in the Gospel of Mark. He just keeps moving with the story. Jesus rebukes their foolish attempt, their hypocritical attempt with this covert plan. Have I not been in the temple this whole time and now you come in to arrest me like a robber? Like I'm leading some rebellion? Imagine the chaos of that moment, like the disorientating chaos if you were there. Yet this is all happening according to the plan of God. As Jesus said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. John Stott writes, so then, although he must die, it was not because he was the helpless victim, either of evil forces arrayed against him or of any inflexible fate decreed for him, but because he freely embraced the purpose of his father for the salvation of sinners as it had been revealed in Scripture. Not fate, not a victim of evil forces, but the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, their plan of redemption, the Son embracing and following that plan, fulfilling their eternal purposes to save, save sinners. And this is how our story moves to somewhat of a conclusion. The armed crowd seizes Jesus and more painful deserting continues. We read, we read, and they all left him and fled. These are the chosen ones. These are the the disciples of God, chosen by Jesus, and they all fled. What a staggering short verse, verse 50. 
and they all left him and fled. This needs to kind of sit on us. Jesus said they would fall away. They all said they wouldn't. Peter swore he would die by his side, would never deny Jesus. They all said the same thing, and now they're running away for their lives. And then we read these two verses, some of the bizarrest little sections in Scripture, 51-52. We read of a young man that was near, and he started running away, and he was tried, they tried to grab him, and for some reason he was wearing only some linen garment, which is probably an ex- expensive undergarment, so think underwear. Trying to escape, they grab him, it's ripped off, and he runs away naked, nude. Now, there's been lots of speculation of what is going on in these two verses. If you've read Mark like me and you just are reading and you come across those two verses, you're like, what? It just happened. What is going on? This unnamed man, who is he? Why is he anonymous? What's the symbolism of this cloth? There's been lots of ideas and speculation, but I think the best thing we could do is just read that in the flow of Mark's storytelling the flow of what he is communicating. What has happened, this dominoing situation, the disciples cross their hearts, swear not to die, to die with Jesus. And then the disciples can't even stay awake and pray because they're so tired. And while Jesus' soul is in agony over what he's about to do, they, then one of the disciples comes and kisses him and betrays him. The group of soldiers come in and all the disciples vanish And what is left, what is left is this picture of a man so scared, he's willing to have his clothes torn off and run away from Jesus naked, then stand and be associated with the Savior. Nakedness, as one commentary noted in this time, would communicate poverty and defeat, pollution, death. What's the significance here? It's, it's this picture, it's this, this emblem of what has been going on. The result of this, the result of the emptiness and also the fallible weakness, not only of the twelve, but of all disciples, the impoverished reality when we're lost, being disconnected with the Savior. They all left Him. The scalding heat of temptations and suffering came down on the disciples and they ran away. The scalding heat of the temptation and suffering ahead came down on Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He stood faithful. Imagine the first hearers of Mark hearing this story. Imagine how that would both challenge and provoke, what that would challenge and provoke in their hearts, what that would do even for us. Aware of our weakness Aware of our weakness, the weakness of man to save and to stand on our own, and the glorious strength of a Savior on our behalf. Can we admit our weakness? Sometimes that's really hard. The weakness of our flesh, the weakness of our endurance, weakness of our faith, the weakness of our human efforts, the reality of our pride the blindness sometimes that we have even to what we think is good and right and what we have all together. 
We encounter our weakness, but it's not to leave us lost. It's not to leave us without help. It's to move us to a Christ to see our need for a Savior who is mighty and strong. I love what James Edward observes. In placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life include his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin, the sin of Nero or the legion of tyrants ever since, but the sin of the tenants of his own vineyard, of his own disciples, of Peter, of James, of you, of me. Disciples who acknowledge we, would, we could invariably run away to. We need something outside of us to come to us. We need to cast ourselves on something that is outside of us, that's not innate within us. One Savior completely who fully did something for us. Makes me think of that verse from Rock of Ages. Naked to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Not our works, not our power, not our righteousness, not our strength. What, what will we cling to? What does our weakness expose for us? It's that we need a Savior, a, a cleansing, a fountain of cleansing that Zechariah foresaw that would come from a shepherd who would be struck for sheep who run away and fall away who need a Savior and who acknowledge their need for a Savior. So central to this text is is Jesus' faithfulness to the task of saving for unfaithful, weak followers. As 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy tells us that we are faithless, and yet He is faithful. God, through Mark, challenges us to wrestle with our own faithfulness and causes us to consider the faithfulness of Jesus for us. Now, remember verse 28. I told you to bookmark that. Jesus said, but after I am raised, I will go up to you, before you, to Galilee. What was Jesus saying in that? What was Jesus promising? Well, one, that his death would not be the end. He would die, but his resurrection would follow. Death, sin, betrayal, all of this horrendous evil would not be the end of the story. But secondly, it's a promise to these disciples that he just told would all be scattered and would all fall away, that he would promise restoration for them. Jesus was promising when he rises, he's going to meet up again with them. They're going to be scattered. They're going to do something they're going to regret forever. And yet, in their weakness, Jesus, the good shepherd, when he struck, will gather his disciples again. Not one sheep is going to be lost in his promise. Following Jesus' quote from Zechariah 13.7, when God promised what would happen when the shepherd is struck, the sheep would be scattered, a few verses later it says this, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord, Yahweh, is my God. 
a great suffering will happen and a great weakness will be exposed, but he will work his saving and cleansing and redeeming work to regather his people. He came for us in our destitution, our pain, our lack. I love what Larry Hurtado communicates. He says the passage anticipates that the activity of the disciples as leaders of the Christians after Jesus' crucifixion was based not on some courage or virtue of their own. Imagine being those New Testament disciples and those early church leaders and thinking, man, it wasn't because those guys got it all together. It wasn't because of courage or virtue on their own. That's not how they got into the kingdom. But solely upon the grace of the risen Jesus who restored them to his fellowship and to places of leadership. God's plan was not to leave them, but to gather them. People like them, people like us. And that is extremely good news. We should be thinking here, looking at these disciples and think, that is good news. That is good news for me. Jesus being pierced for us, weak disciples, and he would gather them solely based on the grace of the risen Savior. What are you basing your hope on today? How are you connecting yourself to the risen Savior? By your virtue, by your courage, by what you've done this week or not done this week, or in the power of the risen Savior, putting your hope on Him by faith. The full, complete, substitutionary work of Jesus on our behalf. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just thinking, man, I, I, ran, I fell away and I am too far away. Hear the promise of Jesus that he comes to restore sinners who fall away. It's not too late. It's not too late. Come to him. Repent. Put your faith again on Jesus. Jesus is the one who cried out, Abba, in his weakness and remained faithful for us. So we now, as disciples full of spirit, can cry out, Abba, Father, in our weakness. How powerful is that promise for us? We stand because we are in Christ. We remain faithful because he is faithful. And he, he speaks to us much like that promise. I'm going to go before you. He reminds us that he prepares a place for us, a table for us that we're going to eat with that we just read about and were reminded of. Those disciples, those first hearers under Nero's fist and persecution, maybe they were tempted to run and desert the faith. And we, we have increasing pressures, saints, in our culture. I was talking to um, an individual this week, and they're heading back into school. They're in, they work in the school systems, and the, the intensity of, of what that's starting to feel like. Am I going to lose my job or not based on what I do or don't do? We need, we need help. We need God's power. We need our flesh is weak. We're not sufficient in ourselves, but, but Jesus reminded us the Spirit is willing. We need something to empower us to do this. We need divine help 
the work of, the, of God's grace. And, and this is what happened. This is what happened to Peter. This is what happened to the disciples later, is they experienced an empowering by the Holy Spirit to reverse some of what had just happened here in this moment. Remember Peter, who denied Jesus? He would stand before thousands and he would preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit. In our we- so here's the pro- promise. In our weakness, we're not, we're not stuck. There isn't dismal hopelessness in our weakness. We don't have to run and deny the Savior. We look to the one who fills us with power, as we see in the New Testament, a power that comes by the Spirit. We're not stuck in bondage to our flesh weakness. The Spirit pours us out so that we can say yes to what God wants in obedience. We can face death with courage. We can bear fruitfulness and obedience in hard things. We can have victory over laziness, and we walk in diligence in the kingdom and the things that he calls us to. Jesus has overcome our enemies, and he's called us and empowered us by the Spirit to go and preach his good news. This is the way Paul would communicate his dependence in his weakness and his trust in the Lord and what the power of the cross has communicated for him. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, this is where we go forward in. Prayerful dependence upon God, empowerment by the Spirit in the message of what Jesus has done through his gospel. The message of the cross was the power, a crucified Christ. Paul came not through his greatness or epic presentation or his ability, but flowing from his acknowledgement of his weakness, not the denial of the weakness, but faith upon a Savior who keeps, who saves, and who comes for weak disciples. So church, let's be, let's be okay with our weakness. And let's celebrate and lean into the provision of a great and powerful, strong Savior. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing us and reminding us this morning that, that the disciples you call us here this morning, that us encountering our weakness, our vulnerabilities, seeing when the when the heat sometimes barrels down and it exposes the things that we try to avoid looking or being aware of, God, it's an opportunity for us to run towards you. To move towards you, Jesus, sufficient, full, powerful, strong. The exchange of, of that weakness, Lord, that you embraced on the cross so that we then could be strengthened we could find a fountain of forgiveness and healing and cleansing and we can find a spirit that is poured out so that we can stand in prayerful dependence and follow you in the ways that we are called to as your people. Well, let us turn from our weakness. Let us be okay with admitting our weakness and let us turn in humility to you, Jesus, this morning. Lord, I pray if there's any here that... I feel like they've fallen away too far. God, may they encounter the grace of God 
in Jesus Christ this morning, the welcome of God through you, Jesus, who calls sinners, calls the weary, who calls the broken. Amen.